Look, the focus has to be on that, on getting the remaining American citizens, green card holders, and special immigrant visas, those, those allies whose lives are at risk because of their work for us. It is the week of September 13th, and welcome to episode 97 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, Senior Fellow at the National Security Institute. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Congressman Seth Moulton, Representative for Massachusetts' 6th Congressional District and a Marine Corps veteran of the Iraq War. Congressman Moulton, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. So months before the Taliban took over Afghanistan, you introduced a detailed evacuation plan with other folks in Congress to demonstrate how we could pull out the people we cared about from that country before the U.S. military withdrawal. Can you compare and contrast your plan with what actually happened on the ground? Well, look, I, I don't really care whether the administration followed my particular detailed plan. We we laid it out so that they would have a playbook uh, when they claimed that they didn't have a plan at all and they were working on one. The key thing is we just needed to start earlier. It's that simple. If we had started months ago, we would not have ever had this chaotic scene at the Kabul airport. Or if we had, it would have been only at the very last minute. Uh, we could have gotten the vast majority of people out through an orderly process, ensuring that we got all the right people. Um, we got them before the Taliban took over the country so they didn't have to worry about the challenges of simply getting to the airport or getting through the gates. It essentially would have worked like an expedited version of going to any consular office in the world and saying, I want to get my visa approved to travel to the United States. We would have had multiple airfields, multiple spots, and a country that was controlled by the Afghan government. It would have been completely different. You and Congressman Meyer from Michigan took a celebrated trip to Afghanistan while the evacuation was happening. Can you talk about that trip? What motivated you to go there and what you found when you got there? Sure. Well, let me share just two stories about why I went. The first is that when I was serving in the Marines in Iraq, in the Marine Corps infantry as a rifle platoon commander, I frankly felt abandoned by Congress. I felt that the people making life or death decisions in Washington that affected our lives on the ground had no idea what was actually happening on the ground. And it's very clear that it's Congress's constitutional responsibility, but more important, it's just these leaders' moral responsibility to make these decisions right, to do right by the young Americans that they asked to fight and die for our country. And so as I saw that happening again before my very eyes in Afghanistan, realizing that here I was sitting in Congress on the House Armed Services Committee, having repeatedly requested a Codel to Afghanistan, an official trip, multiple times over months to go and provide exactly this kind of oversight so we could make the right decisions in Washington about the withdrawal. And having been denied that going there on our own was, and literally paying for it ourselves was the only way that it was going to happen. The other experience that immediately preceded the trip was I was up as many veterans have been all night you know, working through the night while it was daytime in Afghanistan to try to get some of our friends and allies to safety. I mean, I mean, literally walking them by phone, text message, WhatsApp, signal message uh, to the gates of the airport, often pleading with them to stay a little longer. I know your daughter's dying of thirst. I mean, in some cases, literally dying of thirst. I know you ran out of food yesterday, but this is the best chance to get you out. And I'm trying 
so hard to get you up on the list to just get you over the wall to, to find someone that I happen to know through my connections in the military to just literally go and pick you out of the crowd or put a ladder over the wall to bring your family to safety. And there was one night that I just focused on four families. I said, I'm just going to try to get these four out by dawn our time. Well, when morning rolled around, I'd gotten one, one out of four. I felt like a failure. But then this heroic airman who literally carried this family to safety sent me a picture of them inside the gate, this heroic journalist, his young wife, and two little daughters that are about the same age of my own. And I said, it was worth it. And if there's anything I can do to save more lives, then I'm going to do it. So you and Congressman Don Bacon introduced the welcoming evacuees coming from overseas to mitigate effects of Displacement Act of 2021, or the Welcomed Act, to help Afghan refugees coming into the U.S. receive refugee benefits. Could you tell us more about this proposal and how it will help those folks? Sure. So this bill makes sure that Afghans who are coming in under a term called humanitarian parole have access to basic resources like food and housing that, of course, they need once they get here. Now, to make it clear, this is corrective language. These Afghans would have had access to these resources if they'd come through the slower, more traditional paths, like getting a special immigrant visa or a P1 or a P2. These are sort of technical State Department terms. But because we had to get them out so quickly, uh, we use this mechanism called humanitarian parole, uh, which moves fast but doesn't give them the resources that they need once they get here. So this is a no-brainer. It's so urgent because these Afghans are coming into the country right now and we need to fix this. No one wants them uh, on the streets. Uh, That's what would happen if we don't make this technical correction to the law. So a lot of Americans, including from what I understand yourself and your staff, a lot of your colleagues on the Hill, a lot of folks in Washington around the United States are working to get family, friends, and colleagues out of Afghanistan. What's the best way for average Americans to play a helpful role? What kind of advice would you give them? Well, of course, the sad reality is that we've left a lot of our allies behind. So I think the veterans community is very firmly still focused on the folks who are in Afghanistan. I know that's where my focus is. And that means that everybody else can really focus on resettling the Afghans who have made it out uh, right here at home. And that's something that everyone can do. It's also important to point out that there's this tendency to label refugees as poor souls to be saved. And and sometimes that's the case. But look, many of these Afghans are highly educated. You know, they nearly all speak English, many multiple languages, many are doctors, teachers, uh, heads of nonprofits, etc. I mean, they had these high profile jobs that put them at risk under the Taliban. That's why they had to leave. They had to leave for their own safety. I mean, literally many of them had prices on their heads because of the extraordinary work that they've done in an incredibly difficult environment. So these are really impressive people. I can't wait to have them as my friends and neighbors, but they need some help just getting back on their feet. Just like myself as a veteran uh, coming home from uh, four tours in Iraq, I needed a little bit of uh, help just getting back on my feet uh, once I got out of the Marines. That's something that we can all help with in our communities. And I think that that's a great opportunity to show what the spirit of America is really all about. And what are your thoughts about uh, the the U.S. government's vetting process for these nominees. Are you concerned about uh, the way we vet uh, folks before they come here from Afghanistan? Should we change anything? And and then how do you think of it overall once folks get here? There's there seems to be a lot of alarms being raised on the far right, perhaps even on the far left really more on the far right. But what, what are your thoughts about that vetting process and the, and the security implications for, 
for this number of evacuees and refugees coming into the country. Look, it's absolutely essential that we get this vetting process correct. And, you know, this is one of the other things that Peter and I looked at on our trip. Uh, Again, a place where there's been no congressional oversight. Uh, Not only has there been no congressional oversight of what's going on on the ground in Kabul, uh, but there hasn't been any oversight in in perfectly safe places like Qatar, where all these refugees are going. Uh, We were the first... uh, members of Congress to go and just watch this process, which includes a very strict vetting process being run by um, Customs and Border Patrol and other uh, federal agents. But what we saw um, in in Qatar was a system that was pretty overwhelmed. Now, I think they're being very careful. And as a result of being overwhelmed, they're just moving very slowly to process these refugees, which has its own host of problems. Uh, But there's no question that we've got to be careful with this process. From what I saw, I think we're doing a pretty good job with the vetting, um, but there's always room for improvement. And in any situation where you have resources that are strained, in this case, these extraordinary young uh, airmen who went over to the airbase in Qatar for a year to refuel aircraft and repair aircraft and suddenly are running one of the biggest refugee operations in the world, uh, we clearly weren't prepared for this. Um, This is another thing that would have been very different if we had started earlier. But we are where we are. We've got to get the vetting process correct. You know, so far, it seems to be going okay. But we'll have to keep checking on it. What are your thoughts about the efforts by groups, one of them called themselves the Pineapple Express, these kind of now non-official U.S. government actors taking direct action in Afghanistan to get Americans and our Afghan allies out of the country. Do you think that's a those are positive efforts or is that something we should be concerned about? No, they're absolutely positive efforts with the best of intentions. But the fact that we had to resort to that just shows how problematic this whole situation is. And it's a place where the State Department now really has to come in, a DOD as well, but especially State Department to come in and work with these groups hand in hand. Uh, I'm in touch with many of them. Um, I was on the phone uh, with one of the, the chairman of one of the boards of these uh, um, these organizations just yesterday, and, and it was very clear that while the State Department has said they want to cooperate, they're not actually doing much of substance to make that cooperation, to operationalize that cooperation on the ground. For many Afghans left behind, this is their only chance. Uh, the U.S. government officially is gone. The state has been very slow to develop the policies that they say they will to get people uh, out who we have left behind. And so uh, they're turning to these organizations run by veterans who are so invested in this personally uh, to get things done. This is a place where the the government needs to come in and and cooperate and recognize that, um, that only by working together can we ultimately save more of the people that we, that we left behind. Let's, let's turn to Afghanistan uh, kind of under the Taliban now. What are your concerns about the possibility that ISIS or Al-Qaeda, or some of these other global terrorist networks are going to use Afghanistan as a launching pad for attacks on the United States or our allies? It's a very real concern. I mean, look, that's exactly why we went there in the first place, because uh, the Taliban, basically a terrorist group themselves, uh, were harboring terrorists who attacked us on 9-11. And so the only hope we have that that won't happen again is because the Taliban have somehow reformed themselves. I think that's a fool's errand to believe that. We certainly shouldn't trust it. Um, and and then the second uh, is the idea that we're going to be able to, uh, you know, stop these terrorist camps or training uh, with over the horizon capabilities. But let's let's be mindful of the fact that not the Taliban, but another terrorist organization, 
ISIS uh, with international ambitions, they're the ones who set off the bomb that killed 13 young Americans uh, at the base in Kabul when we were in country, when we had a lot of resources there. So the idea that now we're going to be able to prevent an attack like that on our homeland, while we have nobody in country, no one at Kabul airport, no uh, intelligence resources on the ground, I think is, is, is going to be difficult. It's maybe not impossible, but it's definitely going to be difficult. The administration has said we're moving to a diplomatic mission in Afghanistan that we're going to start using not boots on the ground, but maybe uh, wingtips on the ground to talk with the Taliban, to negotiate with them, to try to bring them into the international community. What's your recommendation on how we treat them in a diplomatic sense? What should we be doing with the State Department? What should we be doing with the World Bank, IMF? How far can we go in trying to work out kind of an arrangement with the new government there? Well, before I get into it, let me just first lay out there that this is an almost absurd situation we find ourselves in where we went to take out the Taliban 20 years ago, and now we're beholden to them uh, to get our remaining allies out and develop some sort of diplomatic relationship to do so. Look, the focus has to be on that, on getting the remaining American citizens, green card holders, and special immigrant visas, those, those allies whose lives are at risk because of their work for us. It has to be our focus to get them out. And if that requires biting our tongue and sitting down uh, in a diplomatic session with the Taliban, then that's what we need to do. That's the least we can do for the people that we left behind. So Congress is beginning uh, its official oversight activities of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think there's a hearing today in the House. There's going to be a hearing tomorrow in the Senate involving the Secretary of State. Uh, if, if you were sitting there on the panel asking questions of the administration, what would be your first couple questions for, for those who made a lot of the decisions that led to where we are now? My first question won't surprise you at all. It's what are we doing to get out the people we left behind? That has to be our focus right now. And we cannot take our focus off of that until every one of them is here safe. You talked earlier about when you were in Iraq, you felt that you had been abandoned by Congress. What can Congress do now? You cited the example of you and Congressman Meyer going to Afghanistan while the withdrawal was happening and, and while we were kind of in the middle of this crisis. What, what else can Congress be doing now to be more involved, to be more responsible, to take, to be better stewards of its authorities in this area? Look, the Constitution is very clear. The Congress is responsible for deciding whether we go to war. And yet Congress has abrogated that responsibility for two decades now. Um, we're still operating under the legal authority to go to war in Afghanistan, to send troops all over the world. We have troops in Africa and the Far East uh, based on that legal authority to fight terrorism. Because why? Because Congress doesn't have the courage to just have a debate and a vote before the American people and make some tough decisions. That's what we sign up for. I took the same oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States of America as a United States congressman that I took as a U.S. Marine officer. Marines have a lot of courage. They run towards the sound of gunfire. They get in the fight. We did exactly what Congress asked us to do after 9-11. But Congress has not shown that courage. My colleagues and I in Congress have not had that honest debate, that tough vote on whether we should be at war in different parts of the world fighting terrorism. Not just in Afghanistan and Iraq, but many other places where we have troops deployed 
today. Congress has got to get back in the business of doing its job and following the Constitution. So it's not just oversight, although that's important. How can you make good decisions about the war if you don't understand what's going on on the ground? That's the lesson I learned in Iraq. It's also about just having the courage to have that debate in Washington, even if the politics back home are difficult. Some people will say that because Congress was willing to provide the funding for military activities in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, it effectively approved the ongoing operations there. What do you, what do you say to that, that argument? I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. And so we're going to conduct our oversight hearings to understand how these decisions were made by the administration and by past administrations. I mean, let's not forget, it was the Trump administration that started to negotiate with the Taliban in the first place and frankly got a terrible deal uh, from them uh, that then they gave to uh, the President Biden. We're going to conduct our congressional oversight on that, but we've got to look ourselves in the mirror too. Ultimately, the responsibility of when we go to war rests not with the administration, whether it's this administration or all the way back to the Bush administration. It, it rests with us in Congress, or at least it should. So we've got to make sure we look at that too and really think about how we're using or not using uh, the congressional powers that were given by the Constitution. I know you've been working across the aisle uh, in a bipartisan way with folks like Congressman Meyer, Congressman Gallagher, uh, also a Marine who served in Iraq, uh, on exactly these issues. What do, you, what do you think the prospects are for your kind of younger leadership and more aggressive approach to congressional authorities? Is that resonating with, let's, let's face it, the older members of Congress who are in real leadership positions? No, it's not, candidly, but it's resonating with the American people. And that's why we keep at it. Um, we've tried the, the, the go along, get along uh, approach for years, or at least other people have tried that. I think you see a renewed sense of urgency uh, from, from veterans coming to Congress who frankly, frankly have seen worse things in their life, have uh, gone through tougher challenges than the political challenges we face day to day in Washington, and ultimately want to do the right thing, want to do the right thing by the people we represent back home, want to do the right thing by our troops, want to do the right thing by that constitution we swore an oath to protect and defend. Congressman, before we go, is there anything else you would like to mention or discuss uh, for the benefit of our listeners? I want everyone to understand what truly deeply heroic work these Marines, soldiers, airmen, sailors, and many other Americans, including consular officials with the State Department, were doing on the ground in Afghanistan. We put them in a terrible position, trying to save thousands of lives in one of the most difficult, chaotic scenes I've ever seen in my life. But when I went to Abbey Gate, where a few days later that bombing occurred, it was the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. A, a literal sea of humanity, people so desperate to leave because they faced death sentences back home. And our so young, brave Americans wading through that sea of humanity to pluck out our allies, to literally take men and women by their hands to put little girls and boys on their shoulders and carry them to freedom every single time they went out there because they couldn't just be behind the gate. See, I expected to see Marines on one side of the gate and Afghans on the other. No, they had to go out feet from the Taliban with their horse whips to find these Afghans, to find our friends and allies who'd risked their lives for us. And every single time they did that, they knew they were risking their lives. And perhaps the most extraordinary testament to their courage is that right after 13 brave young Americans were killed, there were more Marines said, send me out there. I want to save more people. They lined up to do the mission again. Through all the back and forth in Washington and the 
political bickering that will inevitably take place over Afghanistan, we cannot forget the true heroism of our young American servicemen and women. Congressman, thanks a lot for for being with us today. Thank you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonmatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Connie Ewan for research assistance, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.